Good morning. It is a delight to see all of you. I want to go back to the song that we sang just a little bit ago. And um, you guys know that I've been around for any time. I'm not a musician, but the lyrics of remembering that first moment when we met Christ. Not realizing that song. Did we sing that song last week? We did or we didn't? Okay, the song that had the lyric in it, we sang that last week. We didn't? Okay. I'm trying to figure out where I got it from. Because this week, for some reason, it's been one of those times for me to reminisce about my encounter with God initially and then also the call of God upon my life. And I said, well, maybe sometimes, you know, there's a song or something that kind of triggers those memories. But would you, those who are here who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, would you take just a moment to remember that precious moment when you first realized Jesus Christ was your Savior? That he had come into your life and your life had changed for all of eternity. Can we just take just a moment for that? You want to bow your head? You can do that. You don't have to, but just, just a moment just to remember that precious time and be thankful and grateful that we have that. And, you know, as I said that, I'm thinking of it. Some people say that they came to know Christ over a kind of a progression. But what I'm talking about is when that first time when you realize he truly is my Savior. He truly is my Lord. My life is different because of him. So thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. For being our Savior being our Lord, being our King of Kings. And how blessed we are, Father God, that you call us your sons and daughters. And that none of us are left to live this life within our own strength or power. But you, Holy Spirit, have come in and filled us, empowered us, and enabled us to live this life. And I thank you, Jesus, that we would all have those times when all we want is just you. <laughs> not looking for something, not with an agenda, but just you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, because I know the group that's here, I know that we have a lot of folks here who have curious minds, right? And some of you are saying, okay, why in the world do you have this chair up here? So let me tell you a chair story that has absolutely nothing to do with why I have this chair up here. The first church that I pastored was a small country church down below Florence in Kingsburg, South Carolina. And our chairman of deacons was a precious, precious man of God named Olin Marsh. 
he really epitomized the Christ life. He, it was just a joy to be with this man. And so Brother Olin would come every Sunday morning to our church building. And he would go in and adjust the heat and take care of everything that needed to be done for all of us as we arrived there. And, and, and some of you folks, I'm going to have to educate you because you just don't know the stuff you don't know. But back in the day, we used to have a thing called Sunday School Assembly. Now, what that meant was everybody would come, in, in our case, to the auditorium, and <clears throat> some things would be said and done, maybe sing a song, whatever, and then we would disperse to our classrooms for our Sunday School classes. And after I'd been there for a period of time, it suddenly dawned on me that Brother Olin, who was our Sunday school director as well as our chairman of deacons, when he came early, he would always put the pulpit out and he would take a chair from one of the classrooms and he would put it up near the pulpit. And he did that every Sunday. And it dawned on me, nobody ever sits in that chair. And so I went to him and I said, uh, Brother Olin, why do you always put the chair out every Sunday morning, but nobody ever sits in it? He goes, well, because we've always put that chair out. Now, I'm sharing that because so often we get caught in traditions that we don't really have an understanding of, and we don't even know why it's being done. But because it is being done, we think that's the right thing to do rather than take the time to examine and determine why it is being done. Well, that being said, I was young and a little rambunctious back in the day. And so I would wait for Brother Olin to leave on Sunday morning, and then I would go and get the chair and hide it. And then I would come back for the Sunday school assembly, and guess what? He has found the chair and put it back out. I did that for about three weeks. He never said a word, not a word. After three weeks, I gave up. When I left there as pastor, they still had the chair out on Sunday morning. And I don't know, it may still be there. Who knows? That was only 45 years ago. So, you know, things could have changed by then. Who knows? We are going to use the chair, you'll see in a moment. I want to do a little bit of a recap, because last week we're in James chapter 4, and those first six verses, and in those first six verses, James is really pretty hard. Remember, he's dealing with us as Christians, and we're in this journey of truth. And so as we moved into those verses in uh, James 4, like I say, James, he's, he's not pulling punches. Listen to what he says. Uh, this, it's not going to be on your screen today. I'm just going to read it. You have to listen to it. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, this is James writing to the Christian church. So this could be James writing to a church today since he's writing to a Christian church. And remember, we talked about, too, that this is not, this building is not the church. We are the church. We have a building that's used for church activities, worship, study, fellowship, all those things. But please be reminded because, again, it's one of those traditions that caught on like, you know, the building is the church. No, the building is not the church. It's a place for the church to meet. And we, we're, we're grateful that we have one. Hallelujah. Because if you've if just watching some of the videos about 
Bible stick. Some of them that we saw in there don't have church buildings. They're in thatched huts or they're out under a tree or whatever. So we are blessed to have a building that we can utilize for all the things that we do. But within the church, the body of Christ, the people who are there, James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And we took some time to unpack that last week, that we all have stuff in us that has come to us, things we've done or been done to us. And so we have this toxicity in us. And if we're not careful and it's not taken care of properly, it kind of comes out on other people. Uh, if you've ever seen that, like, um, I, I love the story of the uh, restaurant manager who came into the kitchen and jumped all over his cook. And the cook was back there working. And after a little bit, the manager came back. He said, I am so sorry. I don't know why I did that. It wasn't anything you've done. I just let things build up and I took it out on you. And the cook's response was, well, I knew that. And so what I did was I treated you like one of my pots. I just put you on the back burner and let you simmer for a little bit. And I figured you'd come to the truth sooner or later. Some of us need to get on the back burner for a while just to take care of some things. So James is walking through this truth of church. Verse 2, he says, and you desire, but you do not have. Now, think about this. You want it, and you don't have it, so you kill and you covet to get your way. He says, in other words, you will do whatever it takes and damage people in the process to get what you want. You quarrel and fight because you get you want to get what you want. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now he's talking about prayer, and hopefully before last week, all of you realized in Psalm 66 it says that prayerlessness is sin. In other words, if you are a child of God and you're not in that ongoing relationship with God in prayer, then that's sin. The scripture says, if you know what's right to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Everybody hear that? You know, we, we get caught up in the things we do that we know are wrong. But the scripture is very clear. When you know what's right to do and you don't do it, that is sin as well. So he's talking about this relationship where you come to God and you place everything there. Again, much like the song we just sang where it's not based on my agenda, but on my relationship with you. And when you do ask, he says, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive that you may spend it on what you get your pleasures from. Now, I got to tell you, old James is just telling it like it is because we're living now in a very prominent time of history where it's about what I can get because I want it. I want it how? Any way I can get it. I want it when? I want it now. That's why we pull out the plastic. I want it now. Now, if we stop there, and and notice last week, I went into verse 6 just to give you a little bit of hope. Because verse 6 says this. Well, I didn't even read verse 4. Verse 4 says, you adulterous people. James goes on, and he's just gone... Bat, 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 bat. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. This is the stuff that's happening. You've chosen friendship with the world 
rather than a relationship with God. And then verse 6 says, But he gives us more grace. I was working on that this week, and I got that word grace, and I said, you know, how many people really understand the definition of grace? And I was reading one author, and he said, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is illustrate. Well, the Bible is full of illustrations. For example, on grace, Luke 15 is the most used passage of Scripture on grace. It's about the prodigal son. The prodigal son says to his father, I want what I want. I want it now, and it's owed to me, so give it to me so I can have it, and I can go and do what I want to do. I want to spend it on my pleasures. Kind of sounds like James, what he's saying, doesn't it, in chapter 4. And he does. And because he is reckless and foolish in what he's doing, it doesn't take but a little bit of time, and it's gone. And he ends up working for a pig farmer, And things are so bad that he is finally finding himself eating the same thing the pigs are eating. You know what? I've watched people cascade their lives into that very same thing. Not that they're in a pig pen somewhere eating the same food that the pigs eat. But their life has become so messed up. That it really resembles someone living in a pigsty. And it doesn't mean that things around them aren't nice. It's just that their whole life, their whole attitude, their whole outlook is, is tainted and messed up. And finally, this young man says, wait a minute. I don't have to live like this. My father treats his workers better than what I'm being treated here. I'll go back and tell my dad I'm sorry. And I'll work for my dad. And here's the cool thing. As he is coming down the road toward home, who is out looking for him to come back but his dad? And he and the father run and embrace. And he's so happy to have his... That's the picture of God's grace. Now, the sad part of that story is that this young man who did so foolishly, and there are consequences to foolishness, has an older brother, and he hears all the commotion at the house, and he hears from one of the servants that your brother has returned, and your dad's killing the fatty calf, and we're going to have a big celebration And he's ticked off. See, again, that kind of sounds like the church, doesn't it? When God shows grace in somebody's life, and please understand, I'm not saying there are not consequences to sin and rebellion. There are, and you'll pay those. But the grace of God to receive you back, as this father did, as a metaphor of Father God receiving a wayward child back, and yet the elder brother is ticked off because father is showing such grace so i started looking for stories i said there's got to be some really good stuff and so i I found the story of this kid who was in high school and he was doing poorly in school he didn't know why he just wasn't performing well and so he gets in trouble at school 
And the principal calls his parents in. And the parents find out in this conference that he has been lying to them. That he has not been completing his schoolwork. He's not been turning in his projects. He's telling them all these lies. So they're at the school having this meeting with the principal. And he knows. He's at home. He knows the truth is coming out. So he decides to run away from home. Takes the keys to his dad's car. Even though he does not have a driver's license. Has a learner's permit. Gets in his dad's car and drives to New York City. Parks his dad's car and just starts walking through the city, not knowing where he's going, not really knowing why he's there, and he finds himself in Times Square. And he's just lost. The father and mother come home. They realize, wait a minute, the car is gone. They start contacting his friends. He won't answer his cell phone. He what do we do? Our son is lost. And from the friends, he, the father learns that his son had told them that if he ever ran away, he would go to New York City. So this father and a friend of his get in a car and drive to New York City. And they get there about midnight. And they're literally walking. And, they, and the father said, where do you look for a lost child in New York City? And he said, we just started walking. We got on, said, I'm on one side of the street and the friend's on the other. And there's crowds of people. And we just keep looking in the faces to find my son. He said, they find themselves going closer and closer to Times Square. And the son, and they're doing the interviews back and forth. The son says, and, and, and so I was there and it was getting late. I was getting hungry. And so I went into the McDonald's in Times Square. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? I'm really lost away from my parents. But I know if I go home, there are, there's penalties to be paid. What can I do? What could I do? What should I do? And he looks up <laughs> and he sees his dad's friend walk in the door of McDonald's at Times Square. And he comes over and says, your father is looking for you. And he called his dad and his dad came in and he said, I'll never forget. The son said, I'll never forget. When my dad walked in that door, all the fear that I had, all the frustration, even all the anger that I had melted away because he said, for the first time, I realized how much my father loved me. And I'm guessing that we have people sitting here today that because our earthly fathers have been less than stellar as fathers, that we have projected that onto our father God and misunderstand how deep how abiding his love is for us. I'm trying to think of the writer who said, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, but there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Now, the truth of that is that because we love him, our life will be an honor and a glory to him. 
Now, this father was able to demonstrate love to his son, not excusing his bad behavior, not excusing his sin of rebellion and lying, but to let him know of his father's acceptance of him. And I want to tell you, that is the grace of God as he accepts us with our imperfections. And so there are two words. The first was grace, and you'll see the next one coming up. And that's why the scripture says that God opposes the proud. See, as we move into the next portion of the scripture, I'm sorry, let me back up. The very thing that we want to realize is this. God opposes the proud, but look what he does. He gives his grace to the humble. So it's always, what's his part? What's our part? So look at it. Submit yourself then to God. Submit yourself to God. How do you do that? You say, yes, God. I love what one guy said. He said, when, when the world, the flesh, and the devil say to you, go to sleep, and the Spirit of God says, pray, you pray. When the world, the flesh, and the devil say, eat, and the Spirit of God says, fast, you fast. It, it really, I know that sounds so simple, but that really is how simple it is if we will practice it. But he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, we can only resist the enemy when we have surrendered and submitted ourselves to God. That's the only way it's going to work. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Is that not what we want? Is that not what we just sang? Is that not what happens to us when we read the scripture, when we spend time in prayer? We want to get closer and closer to our heavenly father who loves us so deeply, so amazingly that nothing else will ever truly satisfy us except him. And then it it says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's it saying? Just be honest and confess and repent. You don't have to stay in the pig pen. But instead, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, you have the privilege, the amazing privilege of having that personal, intimate relationship with the holy God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? Well, years ago, the president of Chick-fil-A was speaking at Anderson College here in South Carolina at their graduation commencement. And at that graduation, as he's sharing the truth of the word to them, he says, before you leave today, I'm going to give you a free gift 
that will absolutely change your lives. And he keeps talking and keeps referring to the free gift. Now, you can imagine he's the president of Chick-fil-A. In case you don't know, my understanding is every college that they spoke at, they gave free Chick-fil-A sandwiches. In other words, they gave coupons to go get free Chick-fil-A's. I know when my kids were at North Greenville and they would come and speak there, they'd get free Chick-fil-A sandwiches, coupons to go get them. So you can imagine at a graduation class and a graduation commencement when they're being told you're going to get something free today that it will change your life forever. What do you think most of them are thinking? Money, money, money. You know, what does a graduating college student typically need but money? And he just keeps on. But then he does something phenomenal. I've asked Ivy Bowyer to come and be my assistant for this demonstration. And by the way, I didn't tell him what I was going to do. I told him I wouldn't hurt him. And I definitely won't embarrass him. Please, sir. So what the president of Chick-fil-A did was he reached under the pulpit and he pulled out a shoe brush. And he goes over, gets on his knees with all the people up on the platform. I picked Ivy because his shoes were already shiny, just so you know. And he began to clean and polish the shoes of everybody on the stage. You got two shoes. Now, when he finished, can you imagine, you're sitting there at your graduation commencement, and some dude is up on the stage, shining everybody's shoes, and you're thinking, I want to get the heck out of here. When he finished, he turned around to the audience, and he said this. He said, look under your seat, and you will find one of these. And here's, what I'm, here's your assignment for life. Go find as many shoes as you can find and polish them for as many people as you can. Does that kind of remind you of Jesus? As he got on his knees, washing the dirty feet of his disciples and drying them with a towel. Now all that, of course, is metaphoric. But the truth is this, wherever you go, you will find people who need something that you can humble yourself and minister to them in a dramatic way. Well, excuse me, it's, it's really kind of a routine way, isn't it? Thank you, Ivy. You did great. If I missed the spot, I'll get it later, okay? So let me illustrate. Even Father. This past week on Thursday, Bill Lindsay was in intensive care in um, the hospital in Charlotte. They've changed their names. I'm trying to think what it is. Um, Atrium Health. 
By the way, he's home. Our prayer chain system is down. That's why you haven't gotten the update, but um, he's home. Waiting for a time to go back for more tests, etc. But anyway, he is home. So I go in intensive care. And I want to tell you, I was impressed with the nursing care that he was getting. Now, I realize it's intensive care, so it's going to be a little, hopefully, better, as it were. Because there's more staff or less patients. And Bill was bragging on the staff. He, was, he said, this nurse here, she is amazing, and she did this, and she did that, and it was just incredible. And she left. Two others come in, and they're getting ready to do something, and they, and they realize that I'm his pastor, and I'm visiting. They said, we'll step out. We'll give you guys some time. And they stepped out. And Bill and I are talking, and another nurse comes in, and she's not stepping out. <laughs> but she's very nice. And I was having a little trouble understanding her. Of course, she's got a mask on, but I'm having a little trouble understanding her dialect. And as we're talking, she comes to realize that I'm Bill's pastor. And she goes, oh, can you pray for me? I said, well, of course I can. What are we praying about? She goes, well, my mother is ill in Africa, and I'm having to go back to Africa to visit my mom. I said, well, sure. I said, can we pray right now? And give me your name. And she literally, you know how they're, they all have a name tag on me. You can't read their name. You ever seen that? You know, they're, they're never flip forward. Always flip. Anyway, she goes through the whole thing to flip her name tag where I can see her name. And so she and Bill and I just join hands there in intensive care and pray for her mom who's in Africa. That's washing feet, folks. It's wherever we are, with whomever we are. That God provides an opportunity for us to minister to someone. It may be physical. Ronnie Knipe is over here, and I'm telling you, I've been in ministry for a while. And Ronnie, one of our deacons, one of our shepherds here, the way he ministers to people is mind-blowing to me. I mean, just he's able to touch them at that very right place and point and i i just i just am in amazement of how he's able to penetrate people when they come in because if you don't know ronnie handles primarily most of the benevolence and and when people come in they all have their own story and those stories sound very similar and if you've heard them for a while you tend to think ah this is all a scam and everybody's just out to get something and the only reason they're here and ronnie is able to penetrate people and and get to a whole different level. And it is amazing to me. Every one of us. Gifted by God. Has a unique opportunity. In whatever place we are. At work. At home. Neighborhood. Out in the community. Wherever we are. We have the opportunity and the privilege. To touch someone. To shine their shoes. As it were. And to demonstrate that we have humbled ourselves before him. And that's why we can humble ourselves before them. And notice what it says. Humble yourselves therefore before the Lord. And he. Look at that. And he will lift you up. He will lift you up.
He is the one. We don't have to get braggadocious. We don't have to get arrogant. We don't have to get prideful. He, he will lift us up. Is that not, is that not the most amazing news that we have this grace? And you've all heard the simple definition. We've illustrated it in the scripture, but the simple definition is God is giving something to us that we do not deserve. That's what his grace is. And then for those of us, as we've come into the kingdom of God and we're living as his kids in his world, we know that grace continued is that enabling power to allow us to live out the Christian life. And that's why, you know, one of the things that I didn't cover last week was some of the things that can hinder us in that relationship and in prayer And one of the things that can hinder us in prayer, Bill's message the other week, is unforgiveness. I got to tell you, I continue to be amazed at Christians who somehow believe it is their prerogative to choose whom is to be forgiven. That just blows me away. Who am I supposed to forgive? Everyone who offends me at any level. It doesn't matter. How many times am I to forgive them? Seven times seven? Or seven times 70? In other words, I don't keep track. Another thing that can hinder us in our walk and our prayer life is just not exercising faith. In Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Nobody here gets slighted. No child of God gets slighted. Every one of us has the same author and perfect of our faith, and it's Jesus Christ. And read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will see how that faith is exercised in daily experience. Giving up. That was Mark's message. Even though I got to confess, I didn't understand all the sports illustration. I told Mark, I said, really, what? You know, just picking. But endurance, we give up so easily today. I can remember, remember some years ago, and we, and we still have them today, so please don't think I'm saying that that's what I'm getting ready to give you is complete and total across the board. It's not. We still have amazingly tenacious, enduring Christians today. But we have a lot of folks who give up way too easily. Well, the Christian life's a little difficult. Yeah, it is. That's why we have to have the Holy Spirit for that to even happen. Well, this relationship, yeah, relationships can be hard too, particularly if the parties in the relationship are not living according to the kingdom of principles. But to stay at it. Or as James points out here, to have the wrong motives, even in our prayers. You know, we have to take our prayer, whatever your prayer is, and you take it to its ultimate conclusion. And if it does not honor and glorify God, it is invalid because it says, as we pray, we pray according to his will. That means we've got to take some time to find out what his will is in that situation. That's why you have to love 
the guys of the Old Testament, particularly David, <clears throat> excuse me, King David, even though he messed up, every time he would do a battle, he would always consult the Lord, how do I fight this battle? How do I deal with this situation? How do I handle this circumstance? Because he knew that he couldn't, he didn't have one cookie cutter or one size fits all for everything in life. Just doesn't exist. And here's one that a lot of us don't like to hear. There have been some times when I got to confess, I didn't want to hear it. First Peter 3 says, when you're, there's conflict between you and your wife, your prayers are hindered. But God, you don't understand. She's wrong. If she would do what I tell her to do, there would be no conflict. Isn't it interesting? That the Holy Spirit in inspiring the writing of the scripture would put a verse in there that says, okay, husbands and wives, you're supposed to get along. Boy, that's a real newsflash, isn't it? Wonder if he said somewhere else that you're supposed to be one. Yeah, I think he did. Now, here's the thing about that. You have to work at it. It is not a gimme. It's not a freebie. You have to work at it. You're two individuals coming together. You have your own stuff. And so many of us have our own junk from the past. that's never been dealt with. And we impose that upon our relationship and wonder why these things are not working as they should. Is it not amazing that we have the privilege of having a relationship with our mate that honors God? And if that's not the case, ask God to bring his solution to your situation and your circumstances. But you be the one willing to what? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Humble yourself before him. Live out his grace and see what he does. I think, I, I don't think, I know we will be surprised if we do it his way. And oftentimes, and we've had this in counseling many, many times for marriage counseling. Or when couples would get honest, they would both say, it wasn't just her, it wasn't just him, it was both of us. Now, with his help, we'll work on this together. To have the relationship that honors God. To have the Christian life and experience that honors God. See, the provision that God makes to all that stuff that we talked about is his grace as we humble ourselves to him. Would you stand and join me in prayer, please? Father God, do what you have to do in each of our lives. For our lives to be what you died for, Jesus. And let it show. Let it show. 
Let it show in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. Let it show that we as a people are a people who have been with Jesus. Amen.